It's This Week in the CLE, a conversation and analysis of the week's news in Northeast Ohio by the people who brought you that news, the reporting team at Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, and I'm joined by columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mary Kilpatrick, and in our first segment today, reporter Courtney Stoffy. Hi, guys. Welcome to the inaugural episode, and thanks for agreeing to participate in the experiment. I look forward to it as my weekly opportunity to embarrass myself in front of my boss's boss. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start the conversation with Courtney, who covers Cuyahoga County government, which has been undone by controversy over the past year with a long-running investigation into corruption in the IT department and a rash of inexplicable jail deaths. This week, Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish delivered his State of the County address. But before we get to the specifics of it, Courtney, let's talk about the bigger picture. How much pressure was Budish under, and do you think he delivered what he needed to? I think many residents wanted to hear about the ongoing corruption probe, definitely hear about the jail. Budish did touch on the jail in his state of the county, but he didn't get into the investigation. Not so much the corruption probe really didn't come up. what were the things he he was pushing? What were the where was he trying to take people? He wanted to roll out two big initiatives he wants to work on over the upcoming year, a big climate change proposal for for the whole county, and he also talked about the creation of a microgrid in essentially downtown Cleveland. What's the biggest element of the uh, climate proposal? The he, one he wants to plant a bunch of trees. <laughs> That's that, the one he led with. And how's that work? He wants to partner with county council, have them set aside $5 million over the next five years, and help restore the county's tree canopy. All right. Well, when I'm listening to the speech, I needed to hear and wanted to hear that the county is being well run, right? Because we've been hearing headlines about that it's been dysfunctional. And I think he, he was attempting to, to make that case, but he got way into the weeds because he got very detailed about this this initiative on the environment all good stuff. Don't I'm not sure it belongs in this speech. I needed to understand more about a little bit the bigger picture. Maybe even talk about people that he has, you know, running these departments and, and the work that they're doing. Um, but I felt it. It just kind of left me wondering. Okay, you're still not making me feel better about this dysfunctional government. Well, let, yeah. Let me push it a little further. I mean, you you've had a nonstop series of stories that we've covered pointing out dysfunction like we haven't seen in 10 years is the subject of trees does it feel substantive enough the the other issue the microgrid you know yeah probably does well that gets us into economic development which is a big portion of what the county does and i and i think that you know is worthy of the attention it, it gave there's still a lot more details on that that we don't have especially about how willing are the other partners in this where does it stand if we could flip a switch and sell it tomorrow do we know how far are we from being able to do that? Well, we don't know yet. It's still a vision, and they're still working on it. Um, but at your point, I still felt like, yeah, he was kind of just driving by the the bigger issue, and that's the county corruption and the state of county government post this, um, you know, ch- new charter and this new government. Now we're all, we're in our third, you know, term of a new government. How is it? How's it standing? And I, I just think it takes a skilled. Uh, speaker to kind of to, to take it right on head on and I don't think Armin was able to do it I you know I don't want to dismiss the, the tree effort because in, in environmental circles we understand the value of that but didn't see it belonging yeah, here my dog would certainly hey, like that I love trees I think trees are great but every moment that Armin Budish was talking about trees it was 
clear what he wasn't talking about. Yeah, and that 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 was the surprise. Is he never even said, "Yes, I have this big elephant in the room." I do want to give him his due on the microgrid. I, this is a project that, if it came off, could be huge for economic development. A a off the grid, steady power supply broadband with a separate power source. Um, you would think that for industries that want or need that, this would be a, an attraction to come here. Um, what did he say about getting it off the ground? He's going to need a lot of partners. He's definitely going to need to partner with the city. He's looking to get it right in the downtown area, south of the lake, east of the river, and west of East 55th Street. But he's going to need to bring a lot of folks on board to get it up and running. Yeah, he mentioned uh, what we've already reported a bit, um, and that is, you know, part of this was led by the Cleveland Foundation. They've put money in to study, is there a need? How would you attract people? What are the potential costs? Uh, We know this was part of the Amazon pitch uh, to win their second headquarters here because it's unique. He made that point that we would be the first to have such a thing. Um, And again, the partners would be Cleveland Thermal, which is a private company right there on the lake. Um, Cleveland Public Power, which would provide basically the transmission of that energy over their lines. Um, And then you, you know, obviously have to uh, generate uh, you know, the businesses and all the technology side that goes behind it. Well, we are unique because of Cleveland Public Power, because Dennis Kucinich fought all those years ago to save it. We have a completely redundant power system that most cities don't have. And so if you could harness that, uh, you could do it. But the big question is, will Frank Jackson and Armin Budish work together? Have they worked together on anything previously? Not that we're... Hey, I, w- I was sitting just a few chairs from Frank Jackson, and I was watching uh, closely. And anybody that's watched Frank over the years knows that he's generally a pretty still, silent, motionless person. So uh, he'd probably be deadly to play cards with because I couldn't tell <laughs> whether he liked or disliked the proposal and uh, whether he'd be willing... But Armin you know, was, always does the right thing and gives everybody plenty of props. Well, the speech comes following a week of a lot of bad news for Armin. And actually, in the middle of the speech, uh, the prosecutors handling the uh, corruption case released an indictment of his former jail warden with the accusation that the warden had uh, guards turn their cameras off when they're investigating a jail death. It's one of the more serious charges to come out of this. Um, but but it, like I said, it's been a blitz of ugly news um, Mary, last Friday, there was a pretty significant story that came out about suicides in the jail. Uh, what did that show? Well, first, I want to say kudos to Courtney Astolfi and Adam Faris, who reported that story because it was a great one. So one of the most interesting things out of that story was Metro was pleading with county officials to make changes so that people could be evaluated for mental health issues. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things that happened, I think the the county reached out to, or excuse me, Metro reached out to the county a couple times and said, please make these changes, please make these changes. And uh, Butish on Christmas Day reached out to his staff and said, hey, what's up with this? And there was no response. Uh, and then I think two days later, uh, there was a suicide in the jail. So um, the the timing of it certainly um, is not great. That 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 really was of all the stories that have come out, even with the marshals' investigation, one of the more distressing because because at this point you've got a six alarm fire. You know people have died. You know the marshal service has found this to be one of the least humane jails they've ever looked at. 
they get this warning from Metro Health, a very credible agency, and it's an email with no response, you would think at that point you'd have six people running out there to, to get the correction, but we really didn't see that. And this was just a couple weeks after Armin Budashed across from us and said, the jail is our top priority. We are working swiftly, quickly to make necessary changes. And here you have a hospital saying this is a crucial one and nothing well, quite I think, happened. I think one of the most interesting things is in, in response to Budish saying, what's up with this um, after the, the prisoner died? Um, the, the sheriff said, well, we wanted to implement these changes immediately that Metro Health was asking for, but there was a property machine and we had to move the property machine. And what is this property machine that the, the county's not answering any questions about it? Like, I, I think that's so fascinating. Why, why was that the stop? Why was that the reason why they couldn't implement the changes? Well, as Courtney knows, the county has not always been the most forthcoming when we ask those kinds of questions. Not quite. So, so this is leading, I think, to our next story, which is a lack of faith in the county's ability to fix the jail. What happened in municipal court, Mark? Uh, Judge Michael Nelson, um, act, you know, called on the county to initiate a conversation with the U.S. Justice Department to enter into uh, an agreement called a consent decree that would basically uh, force the county to follow some very specific rules that a you know, a judge would ultimately make sure happened, uh, you know, reforms uh, that would happen. You know, obviously, uh, you don't know what the U.S. Justice Department wants to do. They didn't want to talk about it. And typically in these cases, they go in and sort of force that issue as they did in the city of Cleveland, even though, you know, Mayor Jackson, I'm using air quotes here, invited them in. Um, there was a lot of, you know, problems there and, and you could be forced into it or you can agree to do it. But Michael Nelson is using his uh, position as a judge, I think, in a, in a in the right way to call. He was one of the first to complain about the conditions at that jail. Um, you know, he's coming to this with the background of a defense attorney, uh, you know, was heading the NAACP. He looks at this as a social justice issue in addition to the obvious safety issue. And, uh, you know, I think he's he's calling for the right thing. Whether this happens or not, it will keep the pressure up. But it, it would take the reform out of the hands of the county and put it under the the purview of a judge or a monitor yes and that's that's what you know that's his that's what he believes would guarantee reform i mean the county might now react a little more seriously knowing that that could happen but you know i i'm not sure that you know as you know the u.s justice department is already looking at it you know at the jail related to a couple of deaths you know they've not signaled whether they'd want to go go to the nuclear option here well, an issue involving jail nurses now is bringing national attention to Cuyahoga County involving one of the presidential yeah. candidates. So the short of short version of this story is, you know, the county made a decision that they believe they can provide better care by hiring Metro Health to run the health services of the jail. But that means, you know, unionized workers who work for the county will be out of a job. And so the unions, which, uh, you know, do have a lot of sway over our Democratic officials here because those officials have courted their support for many years, and now it's payback time in their ideas. So they are threatening to picket the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party's annual dinner, which is their big fundraiser, who has a headliner that is one of the Democratic presidential nominees, Kamala Harris, and and she won't cross that picket line. I know her her campaign talked to our political reporter Seth Richardson this week about that point. 
Um, I think the unions are putting their own politics ahead of good public policy. I mean, there's no question Metro Health can provide excellent care. Dan Brady, council president for the county, has tried to step in and say, wait, listen, we're not just doing this, you know, in a vacuum. We recognize there are jobs and people. First of all, some positions at Metro are unionized, some of their nursing staff. Um, and they're allowing those to apply for certain jobs and that they're going to try to set some money aside and make sure anybody that's losing a job has a has some kind of landing or help with transition. All right, so before we leave the county, let's go back to the IT department. Um, we've talked about how it's under investigation for corruption. Um, it's been kind of rudderless as they've lost some of their key people. And now this week we learn that they're even more rudderless. What happened there, Courtney? Yeah, so Michael Young has been serving as the essentially the interim IT director since the last one was put on leave because he was named in subpoenas in the corruption probe. So Michael Young tendered his resignation on Monday, just a business day or two after he was asked to appear before council to explain what happened with computer equipment that was purchased with a $30,000 grant from the state. Young submitted his resignation, took a personal day on the day of the hearing, and we still don't really have answers for what that equipment was used for. The inspector general and the internal auditor are investigating what happened with that equipment, and we don't really have answers. So he quit rather than answer questions from counsel about what they were doing with that equipment. It looks like it. So so it's been a year of turmoil. You've been over there a lot. How do you get anybody to take a job at the county, let alone the IT department, when there's all this controversy? Are they having difficulty getting people to apply for jobs, such as county chief of staff? That's a good question. We're sitting here with an interim chief of staff. There are problems throughout his his high-ranking officials and the administration. I have to imagine it's pretty difficult to get folks to apply. All right, so take off your county hat. Let's put on your RTA hat. One <laughs> of your other jobs is covering the RTA. Um, we've known for years that the trains that run on their various lines are reaching the ends of their useful lives. They're probably beyond them. Uh, and that they really hadn't laid in a supply of cash to replace them. It was always something that was pushed off to the future. But this week, they did make some news about what their wishes are for those replacements. What did they say? Well, a consultant recommended that they take an option that would cost $240 million up front to purchase a new fleet of rail cars. Over 30 years, I think that would be like $715 million. So we're talking a lot of money here. The interim general manager said that he has to go out. He's been talking to the FDA. FTA talking to legislators to try and cobble together funding, but it'll be interesting to see where that's where that's pulled from because that's a large sum. What's the FTA? The Federal Transportation uh, Administration or something close to that. Right. So they need money, but they also announced this week that they're not going to get some of the money they had anticipated. What happened there? They delayed for another year a 25-cent fare increase per ride. It's been delayed twice. The reason that they said they wanted to push it back was because they need more time to study their finances and get a handle on how they're going to move forward. You know, Mark, you've written a lot over the last couple of years about the RTA and the dysfunction there. You hear things like this where they have these big amounts of money with no clue where it's coming from. There's a criminal investigation going on over there, a deep audit. Do you see a light at the end of this tunnel? No, because I don't see that they can keep up with the cost of just replacing those trains without additional 
government money starting with the state uh, really first. I mean, we're not seeing it really in the transportation budget. There's a small increase in some of this gas tax money might might help. I mean, we're largely funded now through a sales tax in the county, um, but they've cut for years and years. I think it's worth pointing out, too, that these same state legislators uh, were willing to give millions and millions of dollars to uh, Amazon to relocate a headquarters here, um, touting the fact that we have this supposed great transportation system right in downtown Cleveland. We didn't get the bid. Now oh, does everybody point. forget yeah, all point. about the the transportation system here that they know some millennials who live in downtown areas want that access. I don't know that they really use it, um, but it, it is this, this push. And um, no, I don't see them getting this. It's going to take more funding. All right. After the break, we're going to talk about First Energy's latest attempts to get the public to bail out their nuclear plants. This is This Week in the CLE. If you're enjoying This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you up to date on the news from overnight and the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. And we're back at This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mira Kilpatrick, and for this segment, Jane Cahoon, our politics editor and the editor of Capital Letter, our morning newsletter. Um, we're going to start this segment with a discussion of First Energy, which for years has been unsuccessfully working to get us all to pay for their dying nuclear plants. They've had no end of... Uh, of proposals, and every time it's been rejected because the, the feeling is ratepayers shouldn't have to bail them out for bad management. What's the latest on this, Jane? Well, it's a new day, Chris. We have uh, a new and former Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, who has regained his uh, position as Speaker and is now backing this. Um, well, it's called a clean energy program. Or yeah, clean, that's I'm what sorry. it is. <laughs> <laughs> the Ohio Clean Air Program. Uh, some would cynically call it a bailout. Um, it would add, uh, I believe it's 250 to every residential customer's uh, electric bill a month, $2.50. It would uh, raise $300 million a year, and um, half of that would go to... Davis Bessie and Perry, the now, plants that they're trying to prop up. In their defense, even though many have disagreed with, with what they're doing, their argument is <clears throat> we should keep these plants going because it gives Ohio energy independence. Right. It's a reliable source of energy. And they say if these plants go away, then uh, you know customers are go going to pay more. And they also say that this bill is um, going to help clean energy because half of the money will go to that. But they are doing away with um, some of these renewable energy mandates, and many critics are upset about but, that. But you say it will cost more money right now because natural gas is so plentiful in Ohio and so cheap, they cannot compete with the cost of producing energy um, at the plants that use right. natural gas. Right, right. Um, but, you know, the critics would say this is um, helping one industry at the expense of another, the, the renewables. Well, critics, many <laughs> legislators, regulators, there have been a long line yeah, of people yeah. that said this is helping them with a bailout. Right, right. Um, you know, this time around, there might be 
more support for it, though. So is there a new bill related to all of this? And is yes, it it's House Bill 6, and that's the one that would tack on the, the extra fees. Um, so that's uh, the, the householder is supporting this, and uh, you got to believe that that's going to give it a better chance than these efforts in the past that have failed. Um, and the Senate president has not... He seems receptive to the idea, and the governor has not come out against it. So, um, And then perhaps um, it helps that First Energy has spent all this money, which um, Andrew Tobias revealed in a story this week um, that uh, detailed all of the campaign contributions, public relations, and advertising, uh, millions of dollars that First Energy and its allies have spent to to uh, move this process along. If I recall, Jane, uh, from some of my reporting years ago when we looked at, uh, you know, who had the biggest force of lobbyists, if I believe it was either, you know, some energy companies, maybe First Energy, you you know, more than a dozen people out there working our legislators. So that's something to be proud of. (laughs) <laughs> well, and of course, our householder says, no, 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 those those donations have nothing to do with no. policy. That's just supporting good government. Yes. And it should be noted that he and uh, a lot of the candidates that, that uh, supported him for House Speaker, they all uh, got con- contributions from First Energy and allies uh, to get them where they are today. Yeah, that was a nice piece of reporting by yeah. uh, by Andrew. I mean, it's good to to put that out there on the record. Um, you know, we talked about Kamal Harris earlier, um, whether or not she comes to Cuyahoga County. There have been a lot of people predicting that Ohio would not be a stop on the presidential trail, that we're somehow not a swing state. But it doesn't seem like that's happening yet. Bernie Sanders was in town. Tell us about that, Mary. So obviously it was a really calculated move on Sanders' part to go to Lordstown to talk about Uh, ensuring that companies like General Motors won't get federal money if they pull out of places like Lordstown. GM just pulled out of Lordstown. It was very painful, very problematic for the entire community, and still a a huge wound there. So I I think it's going to be interesting to see if we see Democrats make swings through Ohio really regularly. Obviously, Hillary Clinton lost the state by a landslide. Democrats for a really long time, you know, since 2016, have been saying we need to focus more on states like Michigan and Wisconsin, states that we lost. Is Ohio going to be included among those states? I don't know. I think we're going to see Lordstown become the official backdrop of uh, Democratic presidential candidates because of what it represents. I've been in that plant during uh, both Republican and Democratic candidate visits because those union workers are our true swing or Reagan Democrats, um, and they've gone back and forth, and now it looks like Trump could lose them. So I think, as Mary said, it was it's a wise move by uh, Bernie Sanders, and uh, we won't know our value as a swing state for a while because it's really going to be, you judge that based on how much money the big parties are going to spend here. And Jane, Seth Richardson, your, your political reporter, went and covered it. Um, what what did he feel like he saw? Was it a crowd that he expected? Was it was there, there a fervor? There was a lot of enthusiasm, and it just made me think back to 2016. Remember all of the uh, Trump voters who said, "Oh, their other choice would be Bernie Sanders," and we said, "What?" But um, the message is appealing in that part of the state. It's a very potent message. When Trump was there, he said. You know, he was going to bring all these jobs back. And now, I mean, I think Bernie Sanders saw this 
giant opportunity to take that same message well he didn't tell you the truth you and know? it doesn't and, hurt and, that he's doing it from a very a location where there was another presidential candidate running from and that's tim ryan who just the other day right. i had to ask myself is he still running for president <laughs> just asking for a friend yes. but he's sort of like there's not a lot of oxygen left after right, right. mayor pete buddha edge edge as he wants you to know uh is running so i think you know a lot of levels bernie's right. visit there was right. was was fun yeah seth's gonna go off with uh ryan to watch how people who don't know who he is react to him mary you traveled the uh the state a good bit um uh, last year trying to understand the way people were thinking um and there there is kind of a division in the democratic party and there's a lot of the major faction of it do not want the bernie sanders do not want the the fringe how do you think those attitudes might be might be changing if they are changing uh since the trump election well i think there are two factions within the democratic party i think they're the group of people who are saying anybody who can beat trump we want the candidate who can compete against trump and then there's another group of people saying wait wait this is our time to really shape our party and there's some really great progressive leaders out there who can really um, shape the future of the party. Why aren't we listening to those voices? When it comes to Bernie Sanders, he is really old. Like if he was old in 2016, <laughs> if if he was Come old, on now. I, I mean he Bernie is. The millennial. Yes. I know, but like you know, if he was old in 2016, he's really old now. I think he's 76 now, 77. 77. I yeah. Think. So I mean, he would be uh, 78, 79 when he takes office. And yeah, I mean, he has been preaching the same sort of message for a really long time and it's catching fire but then you have younger candidates who are sort of taking a different spin on it so i think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not people are going to want to go with the original bernie sanders message or like this new age bernie sanders next generation they're sort of taking his really progressive message and, and moving forward with it so i i don't know i think it's going to be interesting to see if he has the same grassroots support that we saw in 2016 or if there are going to be other people who are going to sort of suck the air out of out of his message right. let's bring it uh, closer to home mark you did a a piece a couple of pieces that are the, the kind of stories you just don't get anywhere else um about a bar owner a bike path and a crumbling foundation it's just one of those nice slice of life pieces tell us about that yeah the uh the Cleveland Metro Parks for a long time has a vision for making uh, bike paths more connected to the lake. Uh, one of the centerpiece trails is called the Lake Link Trail, the Centennial Lake Link Trail, and it runs so you know in the flats around Columbus Road, Carter Road. It's the what's known to a lot of people as Irish Town Bend. Um, and there is a bar there uh, called Major Hoople's, working class bar. Kind of its charm, as I've written, is that it doesn't doesn't embrace change. Um, and now they're going to be doing some development right at the corner there uh, to connect the Red Line Greenway, which is uh, you know where the rapid transit runs, uh, and they're going to link it to the Lake Link Trail. The bar owner doesn't like it, and one of his complaints is the Lake Link Trail is not open because it was heaving and crumbling, and I recently got, uh, after pressing the city of Cleveland, a recent engineer's report of that trail. And it says that, in fact, that trail, if nothing is done, will eventually crumble <laughs> down the hillside. But think about the contrast. We start this by talking about Armin Budish and how he wants to link bike trails as part yeah. of his sustainability. Yeah. I don't know if we mentioned that, but that was part of it. 
Meanwhile, we have a bike trail that was closed for, what, months? Yeah. Because people are worried that you ride it, you might crumble. And and it was reopened after the owner of Hoople's, again, he sort of becomes the central character here, complained that it was closed. Then it's reopened. They said everything's safe. And, and again, you can ride on it. This, you know, uh, sliding hillside doesn't happen overnight. Now we have a new report out that says, yeah, indeed, we've studied it. It's moving faster than we thought. Something needs to be done. The larger picture here is, is that area. And, and should we keep developing and putting stuff down there when now we may uh, be losing part of the infrastructure? It's this critical link. Um, the Greenway is going forward. They're going to start on this $6 million project, which, which you know, really is a fabulous idea. We're taking some unusual space, going to put people there. Um, but now we're going to link to a trail that's really that whole hillside. And, yeah. and as the report points out, the real challenge here isn't just the money fixing it, but then we have private property owners that, you know, either have to buy in or how's this, the city and Metro Park's going to get access to, to do what's right down there, which is uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars to ultimately shore up that whole Irish town bend. That's good stuff. Um, the biggest story in the world this week was the uh, the fire that did all the damage to Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Mary, you put together a story uh, that about local firefighters having seen that fire, wondering what's up locally with old buildings that might lack fire protection as Notre Dame did. What did your story find? Well, many communities or many buildings in Cleveland don't have sprinkler systems. Old buildings, they don't have to because they're grandfathered into the old regulations. But having said that, many do have precautions in place. So, for instance, while the Cleveland Cathedral, the cathedral here, um, doesn't have sprinklers, they do have fire alarms, they do have uh, heat sensors. Uh, but, you know, the, the cost associated with updating some of these buildings, I'm sure, is... Uh, enormous. Uh, so, so, yeah. Are firefighters confident that if some of our, our iconic buildings did catch fire, that they'd be able to do something about it, unlike what happened in Paris? I think what we found is many of the buildings do have plans in place for fires. Like, I don't think anybody really knows yet what happened in Paris or what should have happened in Paris. But I do think in Cleveland, you know, from everyone that I talked to, while every single building isn't completely fireproofed, there are, you know, precautions in place. There are fire alarms. There are heat sensors. Uh, and, and some places do with sprinklers. The cathedral here does not. Okay. Uh, I think I'm safe in saying everybody hates a speed trap after the break, a move that could end some of our notorious speed traps. This is This Week in the CLE. If you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to know and be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. And we're back at the This Week in the CLE podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn with columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mary Kilpatrick, and editor Mark Bosberg, who works with the reporters in this room and many others. Um, we have we have notorious speed traps in Ohio. Uh, they're they're largely supported by a very unusual kind of uh, court called a mayor's court. 
Um, and there's news this week about whether uh, those should continue to exist. Mary, can you give us the background? Yeah. So the ACLU of Ohio is saying that we need to reform our mayor's courts. They're saying that there are racial disparities and that they're saying that we should just get rid of mayor's courts completely in some places, including Akron, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus. I'll be interested to see what comes of this report because they're basically saying that there's a system of racism here working today in Cleveland. Uh, what's going to come of this? Because some of the claims that they're making are, are huge. The fact that, uh, you know, there are more African-American people being um, uh, pushed into the system than, than white people. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting. Why do cities like mayor's courts, why not have the tickets go through municipal court? Well, it's a revenue generator, period, and that's what they like. They get all the money. Yeah, in fact, the ACOU today um, has a billboard up in Bratnall pointing out how much money, literally says um, half a million dollars that they've raised from it. Bratnall is not exactly, you know, the the poorest little tiny township <laughs> out there. Um, and, you know, they like it because it gives them control of a pot of money, and uh, that is the heart of it. And, you know, in bigger communities, they'll complain, well, look, this it's jobs, it's employment, we don't want to give all that up. I think this ties into really what was asked at the county speech t earlier today, which is what are we doing to share services and resources? Well, and isn't there an argument that the mayor's courts actually divert money from the municipal courts organized by the state um, in groups that are all supposed to feed together to to sustain themselves? So if you take Willoughby, Willoughby Hills speeding tickets out of the, the uh, municipal court, it kind of hurts the municipal court. Yeah, and it's, again, supporting, you know, redundancies. That's the bottom line. I mean, you got to have some people to process the paperwork in that little village, whereas if you go through the court system, we're going to have people there doing it. And uh, it's just, this is going to be a push. And if the ACLU really uh, keeps up the campaign, this is going to generate plenty of debate on a needed topic. And we have these on both sides of town, right, Mark? I mean, we've got we've we got do. Willoughby Hills, and we've got North Olmstead. Yeah. And in surrounding counties, too. So, yes, all over. The other thing that's interesting is there is kind of like a bail reform um, element to this because the report said that um, these mayor's courts don't take into account when they're setting fees or setting, you know, whatever you have to pay to, to get out of this court. They, they don't take into account whether or not people can pay. And they're sus suspending people's driver's licenses uh, and preventing them from from going about their lives and, and really causing hardship to people who really can't pay these fines that are annoyances to some people, but but really debilitating to others. And this is just the latest um, criticism. We had a Supreme Court justice in Ohio that was making it his mission to uh, to close them down until he uh, until he died. Um, we spoke early in the hour about clean energy, and we actually have something to talk about that is actual clean energy, unlike the nuclear plants we were discussing. Uh, it seems like there's some con more controversy about the uh, wind turbines that have been proposed for Lake Erie. What's going on there, Mark? Well, uh, we've been talking about wind turbines for ever. Ever. I think I've been on numerous shows for at least a decade. Uh, obviously, it takes a big uh, lead up to this and uh, that takes us to lead co which is the the group kind of trying to pull this together but we're now hearing from uh you know the recreational users of the lake with with some force you know the lake erie uh, marine trades association 
um, has, has come out against it. They feel ultimately, bottom line, going to hurt tourism. Um, and there are other groups joining with them. Uh, my colleague, Laura Johnston, kind of took us into detail here on this issue in, uh, in a recent story where she lays out, you know, their arguments against it. There's always been the environmental uh, argument. We've heard about that, everything from the birds to the potential to, you know, change our, our lakefront, uh, dam- you know, and you know, water quality, et cetera. You know, the real issue for the recreational users isn't just this initial handful of uh, of windmills uh, or wind turbines, I say windmills, and make it seem small. These are massive. Um, because it's if this works, does this ultimately, uh, you know, spark, you know, hundreds, thousands of turbines out on the lake and that, you know, to recreational users is very offensive. I'm not going to miss the chance to say this. This is recreational boaters. You could argue that they just want it to look nice. So are the recreational boaters tilting at the windmills? Yes. We'll we'll see. (laughs) If we really want to get in environmental issues, let's let's not face it. If you're a power boater, there's plenty of oil and (laughs) bilge that gets put out into the water. Um, But I think there's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear from these guys now. Uh, on it and how much of a push you know tourism is going to they're going to use that issue i mean it's what like 10 billion dollars a year that lake erie generates through tourism and that's the you know they're a hefty lobby as well be interesting to see if we ever see these things on a much more serious note cleveland has had a long-term problem with uh, lead poisoning mainly from lead paint it's been detailed uh, by the point dealer um, over the past five years with without any real action by the city it's resulted in a, a true grassroots effort to uh, to put something on the ballot to compel the uh the city to finally start enforcing some standards mark what's the latest with the petitions that the group known as clash submitted to the city well they had a technical error um, they failed to put some uh, state required language at the top of the petition which by state law, uh, invalidated the petitions. Um, what uh, so city council, when they received it, uh, rejected the petitions uh, because of that. Uh, but let me interrupt you a sec. The 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 by by submitting the petitions, if if city council had accepted them. The next step is council considers the legislation they're asking for, and if they reject it, if they don't accept it, then it would go to the ballot, that's, right? That's correct. So so the council didn't even do the first step of verifying those signatures on the petition so council could consider it. So what's this group Clash's response to well, that? I think they did verify the petitions. Uh, in the signatures, they did have enough signatures. They, but but then there's the certification, the certification, right? Which, which they did not. But council could still take that legislation, regardless, and put it through their own very thorough and transparent committee process if they wish. They're saying they don't wish to, uh, but they could. That while they don't want to do this, even though they're claiming that they're concerned well, about well, that. Right. They, they say they have another group that, that they're affiliated with that is doing their own research and sometime in May will present their own legislation um, and that that's the course they choose to go with. 
And meanwhile, we still meanwhile, have a lead paint problem. Right. And a lead paint problem we've known about for decades and done nothing about, really. So, Mark, you've been paying attention to city council and the mayor for a lot of years. What do you think is... Look, it's now a political story uh, because you are rejecting the will of at least these people who signed it. And you can see that the clash group is trying to exploit that hey you are turning your backs on us clevelanders and they're they're going to the weakest point which is which is a you know fairly new councilman who's tried to step up on this blaine griffin and he is kind of he could just introduce it absolutely and that's what they're they're going to him as what are you going to do you've been supportive publicly verbally well then hell use your your influence and let's push this through as a you know and you know the unspoken thing is is a potential uh mayoral candidate he has ambition uh and he's he is strong-willed has a platform so what will he do and that's the the political drama that this is creating the mind-boggling part of this though is the people that are suffering because of lead paint are the very people frank jackson said were the people he wanted to serve when he ran for each but of the times. Chris, you and I both know the one of the things that defines this mayor is he doesn't like to give in to someone else's will. And so maybe on that point alone, he's going to follow his path. Uh, and we know that he often argues he already has a plan. He just doesn't so talk about it, and he's going to follow his path. So he won't buckle. The other Mark, go ahead. Well, and yeah. uh, Jeff Johnson, the former councilman, is a part of that citizens group. And Jeff challenged uh, Frank Jackson in the last campaign. And got whooped. So why does the mayor worry? But this is part of the mayor's uh, makeup. He will hold it against a larger group if it means setting some of his enemies straight. So it might be the right thing to do. But because Jeff Johnson, because the plane dealer, because others have said, do it, they're not going to do it. And they won't. They won't admit that. I think that plays into it. Again, they're sticking with the story that they've got their own process, an own plan that we're going to finally see. And again, from a mayor that's been here 13 years, and this process started this year. Yeah. So the, the clash push has really been over the last 12 months. It's amazing because we just have seen no progress in 13 years as he's been mayor. Okay, that's the uh, end of segment three. After the break, we're going to talk about the uh, proposed expansion at the Rock Hall. This is This Week in the CLE. You've been reading the expert writers at cleveland.com for years, and now you can engage with them on a more personal level through Project Text. For a small monthly fee, you can receive text messages from the likes of Mary Kay Cabot, Paul Hoynes, Mark Namick, Troy Smith, and many others in our newsroom. Project Text gives you a cost-effective way to support the journalism upon which you rely. Check it out at cleveland.com slash projecttext. And you're listening to This Week in the CLE, the cleveland.com podcast on the week's news. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mary Kilpatrick, and in this segment, pop culture expert Troy Smith. Uh, We're here to talk about the Rock Hall, Uh, Troy has recently started a project text uh, uh, program in which for a small fee, he will send you interesting information about the Rock Hall you can't get anywhere else. You can sign up at cleveland.com slash project text. So, Troy, um, a few weeks ago, uh, the the head of the Rock Hall, Greg Harris, 
uh, announced something very intriguing, a new exhibit that's coming this summer called The Garage. What's that about? Yeah, it's called The Interactive Garage. Uh, it's probably one of the more anticipated exhibits I think they've ever done. Um, probably the biggest I can remember since the Rolling Stones big blowout that they did. Uh, so this exhibit is is really immersive. It's going to allow people to pick up instruments, guitars, keyboards, drums, whatever, um, and record uh, right there in the rock hall. They can play along to their favorite songs. There's going to be a studio where they can actually record their tracks. There's going to be a section where they can design their own merch. Um, they're going to have uh, some instructors that are going to be on hand. I just saw today the actual mock-up that's going to be on the second floor. It looks really cool. It's the first time I saw it. So when you say they're going to have instructors, so if I don't know how to do anything right. on the guitar, is, am I going to go in, put a guitar on, and they're going to show me how to play power Yeah, chords? there's going to be someone there, and, and really they're trying to drive interaction between guests. So if there's someone in a band who's there playing, they can sort of give you some tips, and you can jam along with them. So the four of us could go over to the garage, <laughs> One of us could be on drums, one would have a guitar, and we would make this, this yes, noise. Yes, we can do, uh, you know, 10th Avenue freeze out uh, <laughs> if you want. Get some Springsteen going. And it's everything. They have, uh going to have some acoustic guitars as well. There's going to be a little acoustic studio uh, for people who want to keep it mellow. But I was really impressed with the look of the thing, because if you haven't been in the museum in a while, it's that second floor where the Les Paul guitars were, Sun Recording Studio, all the Alan Freed stuff that goes into that tree of TVs for MTV, they wiping that whole thing out. Is it a permanent exhibit? Yeah. It's, it's, this is going to be there for the long they haul. They are building out the second floor for this exhibit, and it really fits a trend of immersive experiences that museums have been doing for the past couple of years. Some have gone as far to have you know, holograms that you can interact with. I think the Salvador Dali Museum in Florida has that, um, and a lot of it has been digital, but this is really put your hands on guitars, and this is probably as immersive as you, you can get for rock and roll. And this isn't like a guitar and a post you walk up to. You're actually strapping these things You're on. You're putting it on, and it's top of the line. Uh, Harris wouldn't, early on when they announced this, he wasn't revealing, because they were, they were making deals with these companies, but he says, we're going to have Les Paul guitars, we're going to have Fender. Um, this is top of the line equipment. It's not, no, you're not going to be playing you know, John Lennon's guitar or anything like that. They treat those as, you know, works of art. But these are top-line instruments that professional musicians would play. How are they going to deal with lines? Like, are you going to be able to just spend the whole afternoon playing your guitar or... How's it work? It's it, I think it's a trial and error thing for yeah. them. The rock hall is always kind of built to have this flow. I've never I've been there you know a hundred times. I've never really run into a moment where I've been having to wait for someone. For instance, the pinball exhibit they have now is really popular. There's always something for you to jump on. So I imagine it's going to be like that. From the mock up, there's at least I think six stations of guitars and drums each. So there should be enough for people to get in there. So, Mark, you have daughters that play instruments. Would you think they'd get into something like yeah, that? Yeah, and I, I think what's really cool to see, there are, you know, a lot of kids don't have an opportunity to walk into a, a guitar center and pick up a, a guitar. You can't go to people's houses because people get nervous. The fact that kids who've never touched an instrument could potentially now try it, and there is there is a bond that can happen. I have a daughter that plays the drums and uh, one that plays the guitar, and, you know, they love going to the guitar center because... A, they get an audience, and they can turn things up louder than I allow at home. <laughs> uh, 
All right, there's other news out of the Rock Hall. Something actually fairly dramatic in the change of scenery down there. What's going on with that? So a huge expansion. Um, originally, when it came out, it was we're going to build you know this connection to, first of all, anyone who's gone to the Rock Hall parked in the Browns or First Energy Garage, whatever you want to call it, in the winter, it's one of the coldest places in Cleveland once you step outside with the wind. They're going to actually make a connection indoor that you can walk and enjoy the warmth all the way to the Rock Hall from that garage. Um, and also kind of extend uh, the Rock Hall onto that lawn that's in between the Science Center and the Rock Hall. And a lot of that's going to feed into the bottom floor of the Rock Hall, which is their main portion, Level Zero, they call it, the history of rock and roll, where they have everything, the Elvis exhibit, the Beatles, um, the cities, Memphis, Detroit, that sort of thing. Um, and it's going to be about 50,000 square feet they're adding on to the Rock Hall in total. So right now, also on the first floor, I think, is the administrative offices and, and things. Yeah, they're like. hidden, but they're, they're going to build those out as well, add offices uh, for their workers, because a lot of them, even their high-profile workers, share cubicles. Will Will the part that's offices now then become part of the exhibit space? Uh I think so, the way that the Rock Hall structure, because right now the offices are in like hidden doors. If you meet up with someone there, Greg Harris, maybe the CEO, he'll come out of a hidden door that you didn't know was there. So I think that'll become... Wearing, wearing Michael Jackson's outfit or oh. anything like that? You know, I wonder if they... He's a bigger guy than Yeah, that, so. I wonder if he's, you know, sneaking around with a Springsteen jacket on or something. Um, but I think also there's this thing called the vault where they have artifacts that aren't out on display. And there's a lot of them. If you've ever been in there, which most people haven't, it looks like a sweaty gym locker room. It's not the best <laughs> presentation place. You know, like you're sitting there next to Michael Jackson's thriller jacket and a, like cafeteria table and then some lockers. Wow. I think they will probably want to build that out because when you bring in someone like Little Richard or John Mellencamp, you kind of want to give them a nice, you know, five-star tour rather than, oh, this is where we're keeping your shoes that we didn't put out. <laughs> um, so I think they're going to build that out and really make it a high-end display place. You've seen the uh, the drawings. Is this, this kind of connection between the two museums? Does it look good? It's interesting. It's it's all glass, um, and it's it's built on that slope that goes down towards the lake, so it doesn't obstruct the views. That was a big deal. There was a hotel project that was proposed that fell through, and people didn't like the the idea that it was so big, and then it blocked the views of the skyline and the lake. Uh, it looks cool. It's just very preliminary. I think uh, while it will probably look like that. There's no insight into what's going to be inside. How is this going to connect to that first floor of the museum once you get inside of there? But it'll be Rock Hall space. It's not going to be Science Center It's space. all Rock Hall space. They're paying for it out of their own money, $35 million. Um, When's it, is, it supposed to be done? Oh, they'll so It starts in 2021, um, and it takes 36 months. So we're you know six years out from really seeing, you know five, six years, what this will look like. Um, but... Anyone who goes to Rock Hall tomorrow, if they don't go, you know, maybe they're out of town, they don't go for five years, they're going to be walking into a really new-looking space. And it's it's overdue. Harris has wanted to redo that bottom floor. He's wanted to take advantage of that space uh, and lease that grass that's there. And now they're doing it. I've teased the Rock Hall in the past, but uh, this is pretty significant. And I was, Troy, I don't think you were born, but I was there at the <laughs> opening of the Rock Hall. I was outside on that. You I know, was set, on was the it plaza. Ninety two, was it ninety five? Somewhere in there, yeah. ninety two to ninety six. I was in elementary school. So long yeah. ago, <laughs> but you know, to see this this growth is uh, a testament to the Rock Hall because, as you know, you know when they started, they had huge numbers, and the numbers really did drop off after that, and they've really tried to uh, you know recalibrate both you know the, the admissions, the free stuff, and everything to to try to keep 
keep that and they're, they're doing it so this this will be uh you know long overdue and a pretty cool thing yeah their numbers have been very good right yeah, this is why they're doing it they're trying to capitalize on record numbers they've had over the you know really since harris has come on he's a he's a humble guy anybody who's met him you've met him chris he, he's not going to take credit for it but this has aligned with him coming in them redoing surveys actually talking to guests rather than relying on the sort of core baby boomer audience that they had and taking what those people said in surveys and putting it to use. That's why you see they redid the the atrium, they redid the front. There's, I think they're going to have live music at the Rock Hall every single day of summer, they've guaranteed. Well, and the thing about the garage that that is so intriguing is, is you know, as Mark said, you walk in, you strap on a Stratocaster, and somebody shows you how to play three chords. Do you then become... You know, it, it, just a musician after that. Does that does that give people the bug? Just that experience, because without it, they couldn't. I think the the dynamics we see out of that is people come together and play music together from all walks of life. Yeah. It's gonna be a is gonna be interesting. I should mention I'm, I've not just met Greg. I serve on his board. Yeah, you're on the board. So. But I think that too. It's like what Mark said, and you're saying. The Rock Hall's in a unique position where other art museums and history museums, when they're doing immersive experiences, interactive, it's really digital driven. You know, let's put on a 3D headset. This is the real thing. You're standing in front of a screen that says 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You pick a song. You pick You Really Got Me. You pick, uh, you know, Sweet Child of Mine. And then you get to play along with it. And trust me, a lot of people that go to the Rock, rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they they want to be rockster. <laughs> they want to be rockers, even though they're not. So this is their chance to kind of live vicariously in rock's hallowed ground, if you will. So yeah. so it's kind of like Guitar Hero, right? Except yeah, it is, IRL. On it steroids. Is, it man. is an extension of that. I mean, yeah. you don't understand. I think it's, it's interesting. When we say Les Paul Fender guitar, these are expensive <laughs> equipment. This is stuff for the record. My kids do not have <laughs> right? that level of thing. Yeah, I know we're, that. We're in the Yamaha I get what Mary's saying, though. It's kind of like that. That was the big thing, like gathering with your friends and pretending to rock out to, you know, Come As You Are or something on Rock Band. But this is like, you're in the space you know you're in where you know bruce springsteen has walked the rock hall john mellencamp's walked the rock hall um little richard's walked the slash you're gonna be in this place now he has teased greg has teased potential of artists coming in and doing kind of on the spot performances we'll see um i think it was jonathan king from journey showed up and he played his own piano um I think it was maybe well, open arms. I don't think about it. If they do that, and then they take three people that are at the museum to play the other instruments, that would be one of the signature. It would be killer. And it's also built too. The other thing is, museums are trying to build for the Instagram generation. Can we capture moments? Can people share them and promote where they are and what they're doing? That I think is another big part of this. All right, that's going to do it for the first episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast from Cleveland.com, brought to you by the reporting team that brings you the week's news. We hope you'll listen to uh, future episodes. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.